Welcome, and thank you for joining us for today's CME podcast. PrimeMed podcasts are dedicated to providing on-the-go clinicians with pertinent, evidence-based primary care content that won't take too much time out of your busy schedule. Information about CME credits and faculty for today's podcast can be found within this activity's landing page on primemed.com slash podcast. That's pri-med.com slash podcasts. Be sure to also go to this location in order to claim your CME credits after the program. Thank you and enjoy. This is Dr. Ping Fan. My lecture today is a case-based diagnosis of arthritis. I shall be presenting a patient with multiple aches and pains and other systemic symptoms, and I'd like to use this case to highlight how I would approach her diagnosis based on a clinical history and a full physical examination, and then select laboratory studies and imaging to secure the diagnosis. The British Medical Journal has called rheumatology the last remaining haven of the clinician. It is important to understand that to simply do the same arthritis panel for every patient who presents with joint pains is to put the cart before the horse and very often would lead to an erroneous diagnosis. These are my financial disclosures. So the case is KM, a 42-year-old woman working part-time as a police officer who was previously in good health, but now complains of fatigue. She has pain in her fingers and wrists about eight weeks ago, and she said that her joints felt swollen and painful when she was gripping objects. Her shoulders ache and are sore at night, and overall she feels stiff uh, in the morning lasting about an hour. She denies fever, chills, night sweats, weight loss, and she denies any recent uh, symptoms that suggest a viral episode, such as URI symptoms. She takes a statin. On examination, her fingers show full range of motion, she is tender at the joint margins of the finger joints, but there was no swelling. She had a normal full grip. However, her wrists are swollen with limited extension. Her shoulders also feel full with tenderness lateral to the coracoid process. She has a full range of motion, however, of her shoulders, and all her other joints are normal, including the axial joints. She has no tender points in the muscles, and she has no nodules or rashes. So what would be the most likely diagnosis? Rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, viral arthritis, systemic lupus erythematosus, or fibromyalgia. My choice personally would be rheumatoid arthritis. Why rheumatoid arthritis? Well, because even though the history could suddenly be consistent with RA, psoriatic arthritis, viral arthritis, even lupus, and fibromyalgia, the fact that she does not have other systemic findings 
and that she truly has swollen wrist joints with limited extension in, indicates that she has inflammatory arthritis. So this rules out fibromyalgia. It could still be a viral arthritis, even though it's been eight weeks in duration, which is a little bit long for viruses. Typically, they would have symptoms lasting about six weeks and would have resolved at that time. I'll come back to viral uh, to psoriatic arthritis later. So how would we then decide that this may be PSA, psoriatic arthritis, rather than RA? Well, number one, psoriasis should be present at the time of examination. There should be more joints involved in PSA. There should be absence of low back pain, making psoriatic arthritis unlikely, and she should not have morning stiffness with psoriatic arthritis. These are your four choices, and one of them is correct. And the answer is that psoriasis should have been present on examination. In fact, psoriatic arthritis at presentation uh, often involves fewer joints than rheumatoid arthritis. And the fact that she doesn't have low back pain doesn't necessarily rule out psoriatic arthritis because axial symptoms are seen in a minority of patients with PSA. Morning stiffness, on the other hand, is present uh, in both RA as well as PSA. So the correct answer is A. This is sort of the spectrum of psoriatic arthritis. We see that psoriasis precedes arthritis in about 75% of patients. Typically, we have skin manifestation 5 to 15 years before we get joint manifestations. And the fact that she doesn't have psoriasis at the time of presentation would put her in the minority. About 15% of patients will have a simultaneous appearance of both skin and joints being manifested. And it is only about 10% of patients that have arthritis that precedes psoriasis. So it is a distinct minority. And patients with psoriatic arthritis, as discussed earlier, typically have fewer joints being affected at the time of onset. The appearance of the joints should be asymmetrical, whereas rheumatoid arthritis is a very symmetrical disease. Now, she has two wrists being affected, so that could still be psoriatic arthritis. But if all her finger joints are affected in both hands in a symmetrical manner, we would think of RA much more likely than PSA, which would affect just one wrist or one thumb or two fingers sparing the other extremity. Also, there are two targets involved in psoriatic arthritis called the enthesis and the synovium. The enthesis is the attachment of ligament to bone. The synovium is the lining of diarthrodial joints. Now, rheumatoid arthritis is, however, a pure synovitis. It does not have features of enthesitis. Since there are very few synovial structures in the axial skeleton, we do not expect prominent neck, 
back, a, a lower back, a thoracic pain, or sacroiliac pain in patients with rheumatoid arthritis. But because there are many ligaments that attaches to the axial joints, and enthesitis can happen quite often, low back pain would be completely um, consistent with psoriatic arthritis. In the peripheral joints, enthesitis in PSA would appear as so-called sausage digits. That is, the whole finger or the whole toe would be swollen, and there would be pain at the insertion of the tendons into the bone. The DIP joints are also a good way of distinguishing PSA from RA. In RA, the DIP joints are not involved. The reason being that there is very little synovium in the distal interphalangeal joints. Whereas in PSA, the DIP joints are very frequently involved, typically in an asymmetric manner and typically with involvement also of the nail bed. Uh, we think that the involvement of the DIP in PSA is an extension of enthesitis from the base of the nail into the distal joint. The axial joints, as mentioned earlier, could be targets of PSA, especially the sacroiliac joints. They are not involved in rheumatoid arthritis. So here's an example of rheumatoid arthritis. You can see that her wrists are swollen, so are the MCPs and PIP joints with somewhat of a fusiform appearance, but the DIP joints are totally normal and the nails are normal. So this is a symmetrical synovitis. In rheumatoid arthritis, the feet are also involved very early in the disease process. And one way to tell is to simply squeeze the toes together and that would provoke pain because the MTP joints are swollen and when you press them together, they hurt. Furthermore, they have pain. The patient complains of pain when she walks and that is because uh, when the joints are inflamed, the soft tissue pad is displaced anteriorly and she is walking on the naked metatarsal head, which provokes pain. Looking at the toes, you would find that the space between the toes are widened because of the expansion at the MTP joints, and you may see calluses on the bottom of the feet. So RA is a symmetric polyarthritis, and the joints that are affected are the shoulders, elbows, wrists, MCPs, PIPs, hips, knees, ankles, and MTP joints. These are all synovial line joints in the periphery. The axial skeleton is completely not involved, except up at C1, C2, where there are small synovial joints at the atlantoaxial subluxation, and this may, in late rheumatoid arthritis, cause problems such as uh, compression of the spinal cord because of excessive motion of C1 on C2, and it can also cause occipital pain, neck pain, and headaches. This is psoriatic arthritis, and you see the dramatic difference. Here, the right wrist is swollen, but not the left. Both uh, IP joints of the thumbs are swollen. Several DIPs are swollen, but they are not symmetric. 
the left MCP is involved, but not the right. The right PIP, fifth PIP is involved, but not the left. And you can see that the nail shows dystrophy. This classic asymmetry should highlight that this is not RA, but rather PSA. If you look at the, the difference between RA and PSA, you would find that the pathology of rheumatoid arthritis is a proliferative synovium. There is a very intense inflammatory response in the synovial lining, which is normally one or two cells thick. It becomes almost pseudo-lymphoid with a lot of inflammatory cells and lymphocytes. The synovium causes a, a expanding penis or invasive tissue that eats into the underlying cartilage and bone and eventually destroys the joint. There's a lot of inflammatory fluid poured into the joint, causing the typical joint swelling and pain. So you see on the right diagram in the cartoon that the finger joint becomes eventually destroyed. The bone changes will show up on x-rays as erosions. It is also important to recognize that the synovitis is confined to the joint capsule. And when you palpate it, it feels like a sponge, a firm sponge. But look at the rest of the finger. It is totally not involved. It's only at the PIP joint. Now in psoriatic arthritis, we have a slightly different clinical picture because now we have inflammation where ligament attaches to bone. This diagram shows you the erosion into the bone by inflammatory cells where the ligament attaches. This is called antisopathy or antisitis in Latin, indicating inflammation at the enthesis, which is the attachment of ligament to bone. One hallmark of antisitis is heel pain and you see pain at the Achilles tendon where it attaches to the calcaneus, and in the plantar fascia, mimicking plantar fasciitis that is quite common, uh, causing pain in the foot because of where the ligament attaches the bone. When you examine a patient with pain in the ankle who has psoriatic arthritis, you would find that it really looks like that the pain is where the Achilles tendon attaches to the calcaneus and where the plantar fascia attaches to the calcaneus and not in the ankle joint itself. When you perform an x-ray, you see that the inflammatory changes are really at the calcaneus where there is a new bone formation, fluffy periostitis that looks like the x-ray is out of focus and also sclerosis of the bone. Whereas the ankle joint itself, you can see, looks pretty normal. So in RA, we have a pure synovitis, and this is how the finger would look. Whereas in PSA, we get so-called sausage fingers and sausage toes. The entire right second index finger is swollen. And the reason is that it is not just synovitis, but also the ligaments and tendons up and down the joint, uh, up and down the finger, 
with antacitis, which is provoking the response. When you see a swollen digit like that, don't diagnose rheumatoid arthritis because you will be wrong. This is a hallmark of antisopathy and psoriatic arthritis. We call this dactylitis. This is dactylitis in the toe, and you can see that the entire toe is swollen. We can also distinguish RA from PSA by looking at the nails where we should see nail pitting and some disruption of the nail bed with onycholysis. Nail changes are much more common in people with psoriatic arthritis, about 80% or higher than people with just pure psoriasis, where it is under 50%. So when the nails are involved in a patient with psoriasis, you should ask her or him about joint pains, about low back pain and axial symptoms, because you may be looking at psoriatic arthritis. So the psoriasis is typically a plaque in about 80% of patients, shown in the upper left uh, diagram. The other varieties are much less common, such as guttate, pustular, palmar plantar, inverse psoriasis, where there is so-called pinking in the axilla or in the groin without actual thickening of the skin or raised lesions. I typically would refer patients with uh, other forms of psoriasis to a dermatologist for confirmation, such as my dear colleague, Dr. Yamauchi, from whom I borrowed this slide. But if it is plaque psoriasis, I would feel quite comfortable making the diagnosis. Another way that RA is different from PSA is that nodules are typically present only in RA and not in PSA. They are pretty prominent in the elbow and you can see them clearly, but sometimes they can be subtle as over the Achilles tendon and only would be found on physical examination carefully because they are not symptomatic. So based on our history, what tests would we do and which tests would be the least useful? CBC, comprehensive metabolic panel, CPK, urinalysis, sedimentation rate, C-reactive protein, TSH, or uric acid, which is the one test that I would not consider doing on this patient. And the answer would be uric acid. Uric acid would signify gout for a 40-some-year-old woman premenopause to have gout would be extremely unlikely. Furthermore, for gout to present in the upper extremities rather than in the big toe is also very unlikely. And for gout to be a symmetric polyarthritis of the wrist would be distinctly rare. So even if she does have an elevated uric acid, I would not feel comfortable calling uh, her joint symptoms as due to gout. On the other hand, CBC, comprehensive metabolic panel, are, in, are important, both because they signify involvement beyond the joints. For a lupus patient, for example, we might see a low white count, a low platelet count, or anemia, 
uh, or we might see renal compromise. For someone with viral arthritis in the prodromal phase before they turn jaundice, we might see elevated liver enzymes uh, in the hepatitis range. For patients that have Sjogren's syndrome, we might see the same changes and sometimes even electrolyte abnormalities because of kidney involvement with renal tubular acidosis. A CPK may signify that there is muscle inflammation that makes us think of polymyositis, even though it is rare for them to present just with joint symptoms. Urinalysis is important for the same reasons because we we may expect hematuria or proteinuria even early on in a, a lupus patient who presents with arthritis, but has silent lupus nephritis. Set rate CRP tells us that this is an inflammatory disease. And if they are both normal, we will think more about fibromyalgia. A TSH, I think, is of some value in someone who is extremely fatigued, just in case this is a manifestation of hypothyroidism. So DSR and CRP would reflect general systemic inflammation. What about doing rheumatoid factor and NTCCP? And what about ANA? Well, I think once we feel that this is rheumatoid arthritis, doing rheumatoid factor and CCP antibody is reasonable because we expect rheumatoid factor to be positive in about 80% of the patients and CCP positive in about 70%. ANA, on the other hand, doesn't mean that she necessarily have lupus, and the positive test has to be interpreted with caution because in rheumatoid arthritis, ANA is positive in 35 to 40% of patients. Our, our rheumatoid factor, by the way, is not a good screening test for RA because it can be positive in many other situations. In fact, we should not be doing screening tests in rheumatology. They are of no value and usually lead to a misdiagnosis. They should be firmly based on the clinical picture. Even CCP is not a good screening test, even though its positivity is much better than rheumatoid factor. In fact, if you have somebody with symmetrical polyarthritis and a high titer or positive anti-CCP, then we would think that rheumatoid arthritis is the most likely diagnosis with a 98.3% specificity. Sensitivity, however, is lower than rheumatoid factor. NTCCP is an interesting uh, autoantibody. It is present in early and preclinical disease. In my experience, when it is negative at presentation, it tends to be negative later on. It correlates with progressive joint damage. The higher the titer, the more we worry that the disease is more aggressive. The same, by the way, applies to rheumatoid factor. High titer rheumatoid factor also predicts more severe disease. And the two tests do not correlate with each other so that you can have both positive, one positive, or both negative. So patients that are negative in both rheumatoid factor and anti-CCP typically have a... Uh, much uh, milder disease. Patients um, 
who have uh, anti-citrulline positive antibody. Uh, it may be negative in patients uh, with who are rheumatoid factor negative. And the combination of positive rheumatoid factor and anti-CCP in early diagnosis is not a good thing. It indicates that there's a higher risk for persistence of rheumatoid arthritis and predicts uh, uh, more damage. Those are the patients we need to treat aggressively. There are newer tests being developed, such as 1433 ADA, which needs to be further uh, confirmed before widespread use. So now that we have the diagnosis of probable RA, what should we do? Should we do x-rays of the hands, x-rays of the hands and feet? Notice that the feet are not involved in the history. MRI of the hands or no imaging tests because she only has eight weeks of symptoms. And the answer is that we should perform x-rays of the hands and feet. Why do we want to do x-rays in someone with such early diagnosis? And the reason is that very often, even if the, the symptoms are less than a month, erosions are already present on x-rays in about 20-some percent, 25% of patients. The incidence of positivity is really not that different from people that claim to have symptoms for a year. It suggests that for a select population with very aggressive disease, the erosions are present very early, and we should be doing x-rays. So here are x-rays of the hands, and we would do them once a year. I perform x-rays of the hands and feet once a year in all my early rheumatoids, and I would only stop doing them when I find that the disease is under control. Here is a patient of mine who shows some changes in the scaphoid joints uh, even at six months. You can see erosions. And at one year, there were more erosions. This is a patient who responded clinically to methotrexate. But because of the presence of the erosions, I had to add a biologic agent and change therapy. So x-rays are important in telling us that the disease may not be fundamentally controlled, even though she is feeling better. The process is very rapid. From A to C, we're looking at a normal joint that is destroyed by C, and that is only 18 months. The feet are commonly involved, and those circle joints are the ones that happen very often. Many of these patients are not symptomatic. That is why we always x-ray the feet, even in patients that don't have a lot of foot complaints, because we may pick up damage in the feet before we pick them up in the hands. You can see on this uh, diagram, that the progression of radiographic damage is much more rapid in the first year or two, and then it slows down as the disease progresses. That is the reason why x-rays should be done early on and followed every year. MRI would give us a much bigger yield. This study by McQueen shows that about three times as much erosions can be picked up on MRI than on x-rays. However, MRIs are expensive. We have not really uh, been able to use MRIs to predict future progression of disease, whether we should change therapy. And right now, I confine doing MRIs to patients that are a diagnostic problem, such as 
confusion with fibromyalgia, for example. If I show damage on MRI, then I know that I'm dealing with an inflammatory synovitis. The feet, too, can show similar changes, as in the uh, MTP joints, and you can see bright signals in the tendons uh, very often. Here are more pictures showing inflammatory lesions between the, the toes. Ultrasound can also be used to diagnose RA quite readily. Uh, ultrasound would pick up uh, the uh, swollen joints and the erosions. Doppler uh, ultrasound is even more valuable because it picks up blood flow. Increased blood flow would suggest increased damage. So why don't this patient have lupus? So what are the reasons that we would think that lupus is not a possibility if we didn't do the x-rays? The x-rays would help because if she does have radiographic damage, then we know that she doesn't have lupus because lupus does not damage the joints uh, by causing erosions or joint space narrowing. But in this case, why doesn't she have lupus? Is it because she has swollen joints on exam? Because she doesn't have a rash or oral ulcer? Because she does not have fever or weight loss? or she doesn't have morning stiffness for over an hour, or is her history and physical examination fully consistent with early lupus? And the answer is that she does, she is fully consistent. So D should be the correct answer rather than none. Uh, she, her history and physical examination are fully consistent with early lupus. And that is the reason why it is important that when you suspect uh, someone with an inflammatory arthritis to get CBC, comprehensive metabolic panel, and urinalysis, because if you pick up abnormalities there, it really suggests that we're dealing with more than simply rheumatoid arthritis. Patients with lupus can present with a variety of symptoms and complaints, including inflammatory synovitis. The most common complaints are constitutional symptoms of fatigue, fever, some weight loss. Uh, with some skin findings, malar rash would be very likely, uh, photosensitivity, as well as mild hematologic and serologic involvement. So the features that would make me worry that this lady KM may have lupus rather than RA would be if she has a documented fever, weight loss, or she may have weight gain if she has lupus nephritis and proteinuria with the nephrotic syndrome. The synovitis could be the same. In lupus, it tends to be more migratory than in RA, but it is typically polyarticular and symmetrical, as in this patient. If she has a malar rash, photosensitivity, or mouth ulcers, that would direct me towards lupus. So when we do laboratory studies, what would suggest that she may have lupus rather than RA? Well, if she has an anemia, it is unlikely to see anemia in RA of only eight weeks duration. The anemia of chronic disease is a later finding. But if she has early anemia, early neutropenia with lymphopenia or a low platelet count, I would worry about lupus. 
especially if the urine shows one plus protein or red cells, or the sed rate is high, but the CRP is normal. It is really strange that CRPs tend to be normal in lupus unless there is an infection. Obviously, the CK should be normal and the TSA should be normal. So if she has some of these symptoms, then we would think about lupus. Mela rash, discoid rash, photosensitivity, oral ulcers, arthritis, serositis with pericarditis or pleuritis, kidney problems, neurologic disorder, the blood tests in the, in the, uh, that we just discussed, and an immunologic disorder. So she has positive anti-DNA or anti-SM or anti-phospholipid antibody, we would worry about lupus. ANA should be positive. The new criteria for diagnosing lupus insists on a positive ANA as the entry criterion of greater or equal to 1 to 80 on the uh, HEP2 substrate. So this is ANA by immunofluorescence. If the ANA is negative, you can pretty much dismiss lupus because it is so rare to see ANA negative lupus. If it is positive, then you add up all the other features to try to come up with a score, and if it's 10 or more, then we make a diagnosis of lupus. In the European uh, Euro lupus cohort, the most common features are arthritis, mela rash, and fever. Some of the other components are shown here. So here, this young lady has a typical Mela rash, which would suggest that this is lupus. You can see that she has rash on her forehead, on her face. There is the sparing of the so-called nasolabial fold. In rosacea, for example, the redness goes across the nose, doesn't spare that nasolabial fold. If it is spared, that makes lupus much more likely. Doing an ANA would be helpful. We can look at the pattern. It could be a homogeneous pattern on the upper right or a ring pattern on the upper left or speckle pattern uh, lower left or the nuclear pattern lower right. Each of these uh, patterns may signify different ANA determinants. We now think that the ANA is so specific for lupus, it is positive in over 99% of patients. The specificity, however, is low, so that even high titers may be seen in normal people. Anti-DNA is seen in about 78% of lupus patients. SM is only seen in about 10%. So while it is a very specific test, it is uncommon. So when we get a positive ANA, what should we do? We need to do a complete history and a full physical exam, the appropriate labs. And if it is suspicious of an autoimmune disease, we get the ANA panel. And we look at anti-SSA, SSB, double-stranded DNA, RNP, and NTSM. I would recommend getting a TSH free T4 and antithyroid peroxidase. In especially young women that come in with a positive ANA, but doesn't look like lupus. Uh, one of my colleagues, Dr. Shio, has reported that Hashimoto or autoimmune thyroiditis is the most common reason for a positive ANA uh, in the uh, non-lupus population. So 
We would like to review medications in a patient with positive ANA, get a good family history, uh, look for Hashimoto's or Graves' disease, look for any intercurrent viral or bacterial infection. These can cause a transiently positive ANA that then would turn negative. I would recommend uh, getting CBC in all these patients. Think about lymphoma, leukemia in the odd patient. Think about occult chronic liver disease. Any chronic liver disease is associated with a positive ANA, including hepatitis B and hepatitis C. It doesn't have to be autoimmune hepatitis. And in the appropriate patients, think about pulmonary fibrosis or hypertension. So what about ANA negative lupus? I don't think you want to diagnose that. Refer such a patient if strongly suspected uh, to a rheumatologist and let us try to figure out what may be going on. A very common finding are patients that have uh, infantile heart block, when you look at their mothers, they're typically asymptomatic, but they may have positive anti-Rho or anti-LA, SSA, SSB antibody. We think that the so-called ANA negative lupus is so uncommon, but the ones that were reported in the old literature tend to have milder disease and tend to have these strange uh, serpiginous type lesions that we call subacute cutaneous uh, lupus. In my experience, these patients now tend to be ANA positive also. So now we examine this patient again, and we find that she has full range of motion in the wrist. She's tender with a joint margin, but she has no swelling. Now she has diffuse muscle tenderness, and she has tender points, but no muscle weakness. All the laboratory studies that we do were normal, except ANA is positive at 1 to 160. We did the ANA-specific determinants, and they were all negative. So shifting gears from KM, who had swelling in the wrist, with the same history, but an examination does not have any swelling and full range of motion of all her joints, even though she complains that her hands were swollen in the morning. She still has very prominent muscle weakness, I mean, uh, morning stiffness, but she has no muscle weakness on exam, even though she complains of being weak. And she has many tender points and tender muscles. So this is the way fibromyalgia tends to present. The history of fibromyalgia and early RA may be identical. But when you examine them, even though they say their joints are swollen, you cannot find swelling. Even though they say they have limited range of motion, they have normal range of motion passively. They have no objective weakness on examination, no muscle atrophy. They really have minimal mechanical disability, even though they say they are very limited. And importantly, all laboratory studies are normal. But you say, wait a minute, this lady has a positive ANA. I'll come back to that. You really shouldn't be doing x-rays, EMGs in these patients because fibromyalgia is not hard to recognize clinically. But if you do, they should be normal. Fibromyalgia needs to be think about because it has at least double, if not much higher, prevalence than rheumatoid arthritis. In this uh, 
study by Wallet, you can show you can see that fibromyalgia is present in three to six million of the American population, as opposed to one point five million for rheumatoid arthritis and twenty four million for osteoarthritis. In nineteen ninety, we had the ACRL criteria of widespread pain of three months duration. Widespread meaning above and below the waist, right and left side of the body. They should have tender points by exam in the O um, ACR criteria with uh, applying pressure to the point that your thumb is blanched, which is about four kilograms of pressure. The O criteria insists on having positive tenderness in 11 out of 18 specified tender points. I told my fellows at that time that if they have only at 10 points, to press very hard at the 11th point. So even then, we thought this was pretty much nonsense to try to use the number of tender points to, to secure a diagnosis of fibromyalgia. But it is still important to recognize where these tender points are because the majority of patients are tender in these locations. And I show you in this diagram, uh, the distribution of the points, nine on one side of the body, nine on the other, they are very symmetrical. You press hard enough to blanch the thumbnail and that gives you about four kilograms of pressure. So here are the illustration of the points. The occipital triangle is a common one where the suboccipital muscle inserts into bone. The sternocleidoid muscle the lower second sternal, second costochondral junction, the upper border of the trapezius in the mid trapezius, the origin of the supraspinatus in the medial scapula, the lateral epicondyle, the same place that you have uh, tennis elbow pain, the gluteal fold, the trochanteric bursa, same place that you have trochanteric bursitis and the medial fat pads of the knee. So nine on one side, nine on the other. You can see that a lot of the tender points are concentrated around the neck and the shoulder girdle and the anterior chest. This means that many of your patients with whiplash injuries who are tender in all those areas may get misdiagnosed as having fibromyalgia. Besides the tender points and the joint pains, uh, fatigue is a dominant feature. Here you can see uh, the distribution of widespread pain, tenderness, and fatigue. Morning stiffness is very prominent, just like rheumatoid arthritis. So morning stiffness of an hour is not uh, a means of distinguishing RA from fibromyalgia. And in the other symptoms you can see, there is a great link to other organ systems such as headaches, paresthesias, anxiety, dysmenorrhea, dry eyes, dry mouth, depression, irritable bowel symptoms, constipation and diarrhea, urinary urgency, so-called uh, bacteria culture negative, um, urinary tract infection symptoms, and Raynaud's phenomenon, which can actually be demonstrated on examination. Sleep disturbance is pretty much universal too. Uh, typically unrefreshed sleep. A patient sleeps uh, for seven, eight hours, but wake up as if she has not been to bed. 
With this uh, picture in mind, you can see that different specialists, different clinicians would make different diagnoses based on the viewpoint of their specialty. The neuro neurologist calls this chronic asymptomatic, I mean, a, a, a typical headaches. The GI calls it e, uh, irritable bowel. The ENT uh, surgeon causes TMJ syndrome. The cardiologist, costochondritis or CC syndrome. We rheumatologists call it fibromyalgia. Uh, the gynecologists call it PMS. When you're faced with that background, please don't do an ANA because the ANA is going to lead you down the garden path. Even though ANAs are so useful with 99% sensitivity so that if you have a patient who has multi-system disease, has never been treated with steroids, and she is ANA negative, you can almost be sure that she doesn't have lupus. But unfortunately, a positive test gives you only 85% specificity for lupus, which means that 15% of normal people, including fibromyalgia patients, will be positive. The problem with diagnosing lupus with an ANA is that lupus is a rare disease. So the highest prevalence is about four per, per thousand, which is African-American women. This is the base rate. Assuming that you screen a thousand women with nonspecific aches and pains, you would pick up four patients with lupus, but you're going to pick up 150 false positives so that the positive predictive value of a positive ANA in this context is only 4 over 154, which is 2.6%. So therefore, an ANA is really not a good way of distinguishing lupus from fibromyalgia because your fibromyalgia patients will have a positive test of 15% up to as high as 23% in some series. The same goes for chronic fatigue syndrome. It doesn't mean that they have lupus, but that they may have CFS. So in summary, what I have done is to go through with you how the clinical exam and the history are the critical issues that we use to secure a diagnosis of lupus or rheumatoid arthritis or psoriatic arthritis or fibromyalgia. With that firmly understood, then the laboratory tests and x-rays and ultrasound MRIs are important because they help us define the disease more thoroughly give us some idea of prognosis and also what we need to do at that juncture, what kind of medicines that we need to use. But if you are simply to do an arthritis panel and not a thorough history and physical examination, you will be led down the garden path. And this becomes pseudoscience rather than real science. Thank you very much. We thank you again for joining Primed for today's podcast. Remember to claim your CME credits for the program on this activity's landing page on primed.com slash podcast. That's pri-med.com slash podcasts. Also, be sure to check out all of our other podcasts and primary care activities on primed.com as well. See you next time.